This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Parables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on to a deep dive from a question or category from one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. So, this is the first week of a special rerun event in Jeopardy, and these first three weeks we're going to just do like regular episodes, um, because we didn't get a chance to talk about these when they were on, because it was before we started making this podcast. That's right. For three weeks, they will be airing one game per contestant of the 15 contestants who competed in the Tournament of Champions this year. And then... After those 15 episodes air, they will re-air the Tournament of Champions, which means you're going to get to watch Kyle play Jeopardy three times. Three times! Three yeah. times. Gonna ride this 15 minutes of fame as long as I can. With seven, seven games. So you played eight games, and then you played two more. Two in the tournament. Yeah, double digits. And now, now you get through. So uh, this is way more than fifteen minutes of fame, you know. If you even just count the, the minutes that your that you, that your face is on the screen, <laughs> um, that's a good point. Thank you. Um, Although I would say, in a in an episode of Jeopardy, the contestant faces are really not on screen terribly much. That is the truth, because it's a lot. It's a lot of clue. It's a lot yeah. of content. A lot of clue. Yeah. yeah. Which I'm totally fine with, at least for me. I have no no interest in actually being on camera. I do not feel comfortable mm-hmm. in yeah. front of a camera. Yeah, so. yeah, that's really what sets Jeopardy apart from other game shows. Not that I watch them very much because I, I have a clear favorite. Um, is right. that is that Jeopardy is so content heavy? Anyway, so on Monday uh, we saw the game that originally aired on Friday, January twelfth, two thousand eighteen. So the contestants are Alicia Matalikunal, a medical student from Alhambra, California, Alex Cook, a consultant from St. Paul, Minnesota, and Gilbert Collins, a university administrator from Princeton, New Jersey, who at this time had two-day cash winnings totaling $22,798. And we have the Jeopardy! categories January, Pop Culture Gold and Silver, It's Raining Men, Men in Quotation Marks, Mummy Dearest, Oregon, and so you've been indicted. It was fun to see Gilbert on screen again. I really like Gilbert. He was, he's, he's an extremely nice guy and just mm. fun to be around. Uh, game stayed pretty close um, yeah. through single Jeopardy. Uh, yeah, Gilbert got off to an early lead, but then didn't really have much activity uh, through the Jeopardy round. It was mostly Alex and uh, Alicia kind of duking it out. Yep. Uh, The first Daily Double showed up at pick number 15. Alex found it, and he wagered 2,000. He had 3,600. He was in the lead. Gilbert was at 2,400, and Alicia was at 1,800. It was at the $1,000 level in Mummy Dearest, which was all about mummies. He gets the clue. He discovered the grand mummy of them all and soon wrote a book called The Tomb of Tutankhamen. And uh, he does not know that was Howard Carter. 
We talked about that a little bit with Lori Lander Goodman when she guessed it. We did. And, and the way that it's written out in the clue, T-U-T hyphen A-N-K-H hyphen A-M-E-N, is now how I think of his name because of what Lori talked about. Mm-hmm. Like bre- breaking it up into the into the component parts. Yeah. It was interesting, and I, I noticed this with all of the episodes this week, and I'm going to notice it with mine the same way. Having dealt with all of these uh, contestants in the Tournament of Champions, you know, all of us knew what was coming and we all had prep time and we all prepared pretty intensely for it. Seeing some questions that, you know, were missed responses or triple stumpers that I I am confident now that any one of us would have gotten is mm-hmm. really interesting. Like the $1,000 clue in the Oregon category Around 1836, Washington Irving wrote a history of this man's successful fur trading business in Oregon. That's John Jacob Astor. You have to scratch a little deeper into American history to like learn about John Jacob Astor, but that that's a that is a clue that like I expected Gilbert to get when it was on screen, and then mm-hmm. he didn't. And I was like, oh, I'm I'm certain that he would have gotten it now, just given the preparation that we did for the tournament. Yeah. You show up, you get the call, you maybe have four weeks. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, real bonus points and uh, extra chances at winning to the people who really believe from their audition that they're going to get called. But a lot of us feel like we go to the audition and like that's like, I, I remember feeling like the audition was like the pinnacle of my Jeopardy experience and then being completely dumbstruck when the call mm-hmm. came. I had not been preparing. So, you know. You get oh yeah. You, you get four weeks to cram your brain full of trivia, give or take. And right. uh, yeah, no, I had. Uh, I think I've talked about this. It was uh, it was like sixteen months into the eighteen months that they keep you on file after an audition, mm-hmm. and I'd given up hope. I was like, "Meh, okay, I'm not going to get a call. I'll take the test again next time, and I'll try and get another audition and do do the process again." Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I hadn't been working for, toward it, and really like. I did some prep, but I kind of had the attitude of like, well, you know, I was good enough to get through the audition and get on. I'll go and I'll do my best and that'll be that. Yeah. So I imagine that's how a lot of us felt like going in the first time. Yeah. Just being like, yeah, we'll show up and do our best and that'll be, it'll be fun. Yep. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's not surprising to see uh, uh, people who did well and very well, you know, better, better than I did. Um, and then went on to be like absolutely astounding players in the tournament of champions. So at the end of the jeopardy round, Gilbert is in third place at 1400. Alicia is in second at 4,400 and Alex is at 4,600. So Gilbert has some making up to do. Uh, they get the double jeopardy round categories, titles from poetry, 11 letter words, one hit wonders get with the program we used to make that car and public anemone 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 yeah we get the second daily double pretty early and this really sort of shifts uh shifts the tenor of the game um alex finds it as the fifth pick at the $2000 level of get with the program, he wagers two thousand of his thirty six hundred. Um, Gilbert's uh, in second with twenty four hundred. Alicia has eighteen hundred, and he gets the clue. This program, named for a senator, sends U.S. students abroad to foster international goodwill. And he can't think of the Fulbright. Mm-hmm. 
program. Yeah, he can't he can't think of Fulbright scholars. He guesses the Marshall program, um, and so that drops him down well within reach. Yeah, he was starting to take off. Yeah, after that, uh, Gilbert starts uh, making his move. He, he kind of comes alive in in this second half. Yeah, so Gilbert finds uh, the third daily double, pick number 14. It's in Titles from Poetry, which would have been my last choice. Uh, he wagers 3,000 of his 6,600. He had taken the lead here. Alex is at 5,300 and Alicia at 2,400. And he gets the clue... The best laid plans of these two authors gave us 1785's To a Mouse and the 1937 title inspired by it of Mice and Men. And Gilbert like kind of goes backward to me. I, I I would have thought that the the gettable name was the author, author of, of Mice and Men. Um, but he gets out who are Robert Burns and and he's not able to pull John Steinbeck, which is another example of things like I am even like, obviously he missed this. So I'm sure it's burned into his brain anyway, because that's what happens when you miss a question on public television. But I, I'm that's another thing that like I'm confident he would have studied and known in mm-hmm. the tournament. Yeah. But he that drops him back down. So him and Alex are essentially tied right after that. So and this is a game with three missed daily doubles, all three. Um, oh, yeah. Almost, yeah. Book recommendations with Emily. I read Of Mice and Men in one sitting when I didn't want to write a final paper in college. It was gripping. I liked it. It's very good. Yeah. At the end of Double Jeopardy, um, Gilbert has really taken off. He really picked up quite a lot, especially of the high value clues um, in the second half of Double Jeopardy. So he has 10,800 to Alex's 6,900 and Alicia's 2,800. Uh, We get the category African countries, and the clue is, with more than 90 million people, it's Africa's third most populous country, though it's more than 90% desert. Um, And because we've talked about this, I know that he has worked in Africa with with the Peace Corps. Am I remembering this right, Kyle? Yeah. 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 He he was the uh, country site coordinator in Namibia. Right, which is very, very far from the country in question. <laughs> Super far away. It's large, complex. Yeah. It's its own whole continent. Uh, and has the most number of countries mm-hmm. of any continent. Yes. Um, but the fact that Gilbert has worked in Africa probably gives him somewhat more of a grasp of its nuances than uh, than your average American person off the street. Yeah. Alicia has wagered 2,000 and guesses what is Morocco. Um, that's incorrect. Alex has wagered 3,901, uh, trying to get above Gilbert by a dollar. He has what is Egypt, uh, which is correct. But Gilbert has wagered 3,001. That's a cover bet. And he has what is Egypt. And Alex notes that Nigeria and Ethiopia are numbers one and two, respectively. I don't think I know that Ethiopia was number two. That that was the one that got me because I like it's a trivia kind of common thing that Nigeria is the most populous in Africa. But right, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I was like, huh, yeah. Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. I would I would have thought that you know South Africa or something. Yeah, yeah. So normally we would say so Gilbert's coming back on Tuesday, but he's not. He's coming back in like three weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, ex- exactly three weeks for the game 
with myself and Anarchy and Gilbert. Yeah. But on Tuesday, we get the final game of the 2018 College Championship. So this is featuring Drew Gar, a freshman at Brown University from Gainesville, Georgia. Uh, Hannah Sage, a sophomore, sorry, a sophomore at the University of Central Florida from Sarasota, Florida. And William Scott, a freshman at Tufts University from Los Altos, California. And they get the Jeopardy round categories, 21st century operas, internet slang, U.S. forests, Elite Athletes, Government and Politics, and Singularize It. It was real interesting. I, I, I'm going to have to keep an eye out in in the re-air of the tournament episodes. Drew had like a real easy manner about him. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, was, he seemed very calm and, and uh, confident the whole time. It was, yeah. It was fun. Yeah, agree. Yeah, so I liked the Singularize It category. We had um, Minima... Uh, singular, the singular is minimum fungi, the singular is fungus, dice, the singular is die. Genera, where I felt, I felt it started to get tricky at the $800 mm-hmm. level, um, but Drew got that one. And the next, the singular of genera is genus. Yep. The singular of sphinges is sphinx. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Somehow I knew that one, which means somewhere I have heard that before, but I cannot for the life of me recall yeah i got it without i don't think i'd heard it but i think i knew the plural of larynx is larynges ah interesting yeah Mm -hmm. the first daily double comes up in the u.s forests category uh at the thousand dollar level it's the sixth pick drew finds it and wagers two thousand four hundred uh which is a true daily double Hannah is at zero at that point, and William is at negative 200. Um, so Drew is all alone in the having money, money. position <laughs> at that point. Um, yeah. The clue is New Hampshire's Black Mountain State Forest has plenty of the paper type of this, the state tree. And it was fun to see him work through it. He eventually came up with what is birch. Um, yeah. That was impressive. I yeah. I don't know if this was his thought process, but I initially thought... Paper is made from trees and was like, well, is there a particular kind of tree that they usually make paper from that's usually in New Hampshire? And then I remember, and then I thought of paper birches, the bark is kind of thin and papery and peels off in strips. Hmm. But it took, it took me a second to jump from thinking about like paper production. Do you want to tell us anything about operas, Kyle? Uh, sure. I mean... 21st century opera is a lot of a lot of people who like don't spend any time with it uh, think that opera is kind of a dead genre fully of the past. But no, people are still writing new operas, trying to figure out ways to modernize it and keep it in our current day, uh, mm-hmm. whether that's with subject matter or uh, musical treatment or staging and, and production. Um, I... I have not actually heard the music of any of these operas that were listed, except for, I guess, the $400 clue. Julianne Bilodeau adapted Pink Floyd's 1979 album into the 2017 opera Another Brick in This, and that's The Wall. Hannah got it. I mean, I've listened to Pink Floyd, so I guess I've heard that music. But I need to look into these other... need to look into these other modern operas. 
Yeah. I thought they made the whole category pretty accessible. You don't need to actually know any 21st century operas. Yes. But then they did that by asking about the, the subjects, the, yeah. like the material that the, uh, from which the operas drew their inspiration. You didn't have to come up with a composer or anything. Yes, that would have been tough. <laughs> so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Drew has 10,400. Uh, William has 5,200, uh, exactly half of Drew's score. Uh, Hannah has 1,000. And the double Jeopardy categories are world geography, health and medicine. I'm kind of a big deal, big in quotation marks. Summer job ideas, explorers, and before and after. Gotta love it, before and after. I love before and after. At the $800 level... The clue was period of rest in Genesis, where working parents leave toddlers. It was a triple stumper. They said they were looking for seventh day care centers. I said Sabbath daycare. I don't know if they would have taken it. I think it's close enough. Hard to say. Probably. Yeah, I, can, I thought of seventh day care. Yeah. Which I feel like the centers was not necessarily necessary. Uh, yeah, that's, that's my feeling. But yeah. We see that William is clearly from California. In the summer job ideas, the $1,200 clue is, if you live in the Midwest, maybe you could try detasseling this crop. Uh, he rang in and guessed, what is wheat? Uh, Drew picked it up. That's that's corn. Yeah. I mean, I have driven, oof, I-70 or I-80. There's no way to avoid the corn. And mm-hmm. having lived in kind of rural Indiana for a few years, man. Yeah. How could there be that much corn in the world? There's so much corn. All right. Uh... Daily Double number two comes in the world geography category. That was a fun one. William finds it. It is at the $2,000 level, and he wagered all of it. He had $6,400. It was the only real move he could make because Druv was already up to $15,200, and Hannah was at $3,000. So got to make a big move to just keep it competitive. Uh, And he gets the clue... The snowy mountains are a range in this country's Alps. And he guessed what is Switzerland, but it is Australia. You know, there's it's hard to take that guess if you don't know of the Australian Alps. But I guess a clue there is that it is an English name, whereas the Alps are not in an English-speaking country in Europe. Mm, but Yeah, that's right. But that's a tough... That's a tough clue if you if you don't know that Australia has a mountain range called the Alps. Yes, I didn't remember that. But I was trying to think of a of a European country that would fit. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So he drops down to zero there. Mm-hmm. And then a f- little bit later, at clue number twenty, Drew finds daily double number three in the explorers category at the eight hundred dollar level. He doesn't want to uh, risk his huge lead. He's at 18,400 to William's 6,000 and Hannah's 3,000. He wagers just 600 and gets the clue. In the 1850s, Paul du Chaillou became the first European to see and report on this ape many believe was a myth. Uh, Drew guessed what is an orangutan. Um, the correct response there is a gorilla. I didn't know that. Yep. I didn't either. That was interesting. Yeah. So at the end of Double Jeopardy, William is at 8,800, Hannah's at 4,600, and Drew is at 18,200. 
uh, and their scores from previously, William had zero, Hannah had 7,600, and Dhruv had 9,000. So Dhruv can bet zero and still win the tournament. They get the Final Jeopardy category, Classic Literary Characters. And the clue is, he declares that one of the people he is trying to emulate is a medieval knight known as Amadis of Gaul. I would say they all got it right, but two of them got it right. Hannah got it right. She wagered 4,600, whole thing. Got who is Don Quixote. William wagered 8,001, also with who is Don Quixote. And Druve put, that's all, folks, with a smiley face. So I guess he has a tradition of writing messages instead of responses. Uh, and he... <laughs> okay there, Kyle. No, it's fine. It was heartfelt and touching and meaningful, and I'm really happy for everything that it got him. And he wagered $19, which Alex asked, is that your age? And he looked around kind of like, oh, yeah. Uh, I think he really just wanted to get the score of 18181, which is what he ended up with, 18,181. Oh, that's a much better explanation than that's how old I am. <laughs> I mean, it might be. I mean, in, yeah. in, in the uh, Tournament of Champions in the semifinals, he wagered 1995, which is the year of his birth. So maybe mm-hmm. he was doing that. I don't know. Yeah, so we, we see how Druve becomes champion. Mm-hmm. On Wednesday of this week, we saw the show that originally aired Thursday, January 25, 2018. Uh, the contestants are Jeff Montrusco, a data analyst from Centennial, Colorado. Woo. Rosie Junker, a literary agent from New York, New York. And Rachel Lindgren, a fire lookout from Bend, Oregon, whose four-day cash winnings total 65000 $199. And we get the categories, the quotable Will Rogers, three-letter words, band of brothers and sisters, train time, found my place in the book, and Crayola colors. I like seeing the Crayola colors category. I knew you would. I feel like we've talked about this before. Yeah, I think we A talked about the contest to name new crayon colors in 1993. That was yes. a $200 level. Um, in 1993, consumers were asked to name new colors and came up with this mountain's majesty. It's Purple Mountain's majesty. Rachel got that one. Yep. But I thought that was a fun category overall. Yeah. In the Found My Place in the Book category, I have another book recommendation. Um, At the $200 level, uh, Jhumpa Lahiri's novel The Namesake follows a family moving from Calcutta to this college Boston-area city. Nobody knew that was Cambridge. Um, That book was lovely. It was just really beautiful and enjoyable. Cool. Yeah. So I recommend it. Okay. Um, I have never read a Patricia Highsmith novel, and I'm starting to wonder if that's a problem. I have also never read a Patricia Highsmith novel, and I am not wondering if that's a problem. (laughs) Fair enough. All right, the first Daily Double comes really late in the round. It's pick number 27. Rosie finds it. All three contestants were avoiding the Will Rogers category, so that's where they find it at the $400 level. She wagers 2,000 of her 4,000. Rachel is in the lead at 5,200 and Jeff is at 200. And she gets the clue. This then 96 member institution, quote, opens with a prayer and closes with an investigation. And she clearly has like no jumping off point because she guesses what is Interpol. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is the United States Senate. Yeah, they just couldn't quite get their, uh, their footing in that, in that whole category. Yeah. 
I don't blame them. That's like not to be ageist or anything, but that seems like a category that is skewed for a significantly older population. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I feel like uh, this is a category where like the generation above me, all of the, all the like uncles and like grandfathers would have been shouting the answers of the TV. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I felt bad for Jeff who hazarded an almost correct guess as the very last clue at the thousand dollar level. The clue was, I never met one of these. And he said, what is a man I never liked? Um, he's almost there. It's, I never met a man I didn't like, but he was not close enough. So he lost the thousand and yeah. finished uh, finished the first round in the red. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jeff is in third place at negative 800. Uh, Rosie is in second at 2800. And Rachel is in the lead at 5200. And the Double Jeopardy round categories are Three Name the Author, Historic Boycotts, Rhyming Terms, The Producers, Heavens, and Tibet. See? Such bad puns. Such bad puns. I sort of love it. Yeah, of course. Daily Double number two comes up pretty quickly um, in the Rhyming Terms category at the $1,600 level. Jeff finds it as the fifth pick. Wagers 2,000. Um, he's made it out of the red and up to 800. Rachel's at 5,600. Rosie's at 3,600. He gets the clue Greek term for the unwashed masses, and he says, who are the hoi polloi? Uh, that's correct, although hoi means the. So uh, like some other terms that have uh, made it into English, if you want to be pedantic, you can you can say it shouldn't you shouldn't say it with a the because hoy is the uh, Greek definite definite article. Who would ever want to be pedantic <laughs> about anything? <laughs> That's what we're here for. We're Thank here you. to be pedantic. That's fair. Yeah. The Tibet category was really interesting. I I, I really enjoyed it, and I I hope hopefully it kind of. Hopefully it educated some some viewers. The the whole like free Tibet movement thing, I think, sort of predates us a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like it was really big when when like I was a kid. You know, you see a lot of those things, but it has kind of fallen off. There's a triple stumper at the the two thousand dollar level. The clue is the Tashi Lunpo Monastery is headed by this Lama, traditionally number two to the Dalai Lama. That's the Panchen Lama. Which has a pretty, pretty like awful story in this current iteration, because the idea, of course, with Tibetan Buddhism is um, the Dalai Lama and the Panchen Lama are reincarnated every after they die, uh, and so part of their tradition is identifying who the next Dalai Lama is after the last one has died and the next Panchen Lama, uh, and once the this. The current, like currently supposedly living Panchen Lama was identified. The Chinese government disappeared him and his family. Oof. Uh, so, yeah, he he is a the Panchen Lama is a like a a very profound, divisive political figure, or or I guess more like I don't even know what the word would be like image really mm-hmm. currently in Tibet. I actually did not know that. Yeah, the third daily double comes at pick number 13, so both Daily Doubles come in the first half. Uh, it's in the three-name-the-author category. 
Uh, Rosie finds this one as well. Rachel didn't find any of them. Rosie wagers 3,000 of her 6,800. Rachel is still in the lead at 8,400, and Jeff is at 2,800. Uh, she gets the clue, Joe's boys and how they turned out. We have recently discussed how I have never read Little Women or dealt mm-hmm. in any way with it directly, uh, but I knew that this was Louisa May Alcott, and so did Rosie. So she added 3,000 to her score. Good job. Thanks. Uh, to you and her. We had a throwback to a recent uh, deep dive in the historic boycotts category. Yeah. At the $2,000 level, the 1767 Townsend Acts taxed imports to America from Britain. A boycott by colonists got the taxes lifted on everything but this. Uh, that was tea. And did we address that directly? I think you might have. I think you did. Uh, maybe, I talked about not. the town. I talked about the Townsend Acts uh, kind of tangentially to the Intolerable Acts because they are kind of like precursors to them or around the Intolerable Acts. So right, yeah, it's fun to it's fun to see things come up that are connected to things we've talked about here. And eventually, if we do this podcast long enough, we will cover literally every topic that Jeopardy every talks about. Every area so. of human knowledge. Yeah, we will That's, know everything. Mm-hmm. That's the plan, anyway. That's the plan. Uh, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, Rosie is in the lead with 13,800. Mm-hmm. Rachel is trailing with 10,800, but you know how it's going to end because this is the lead up to <laughs> right. the run of the Tournament of Champions. Yeah, she you has plot armor. several ways at this point to know how this is going to end. Um, she does have plot armor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jeff has 5,200. And the final Jeopardy category is 19th century Europeans. And the clue is... In an 1889 letter to his brother, he wrote, I wouldn't exactly have chosen madness if there had been a choice. I thought this was a really tough one. I went to this figure's museum and I still didn't think of him because you don't know what kind of discipline you're supposed to be thinking in. Yeah, it's like... You don't know if it's a musician or a scientist or a head of state. Yeah, or an author or... a clergy or a, a philosopher or yeah you yeah. don't know mm-hmm. yeah i thought it was very vague yeah the contestants did none of them got it it was a triple stumper um so jeff had wagered three thousand and didn't come up with anything he has who question mark rachel has wagered zero this is very savvy yeah very savvy wager rachel um, she has, who is Dostoevsky with three question marks? Um, <laughs> cause sometimes you just have to telegraph that you really have no idea. Yep. Um, I, I find it is not uncommon to be anxious about hazarding a guess. Uh-huh. And I find that sometimes telegraphing that you are just hazarding a guess sort of takes the edge off of that anxiety. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have put multiple question marks to say, I really don't know, but it's better to write down something than nothing so um so i don't know if that was rachel's thought in writing three question marks but yeah that's sort of how i handle that rosie has guessed who is nietzsche and rosie has correctly arguably made a cover bet of uh-huh. 7801 which means that she drops down below rachel who made that zero wager and rachel is the winner that is right that's rachel getting her Tickets stamped to the tournament. And then we get... Which, I just gotta say, Rachel is just a lovely person. I mean, they're all the contestants were great. Um, but Rachel is just... 
you could tell from from the, her like mannerisms and the way she like carries herself. She's just like really sweet and very kind. Yeah, she seems that way. Yeah. So on Thursday, we finally get a game that lines up with the day of the week that it actually aired on. Now <laughs> uh, we get a show that aired uh, Thursday, February first, twenty eighteen. These contestants actually came very close to each other. Gilbert was the uh, earliest one to make it for uh, the 2019 Tournament of Champions. And then Rachel, they actually met because they were on the same tape day when Gilbert's run ended and hers started, even though they didn't face each other. And then hers, uh, Rachel's ended on a Friday, uh, and so she went home. And then the following Monday, Ryan's streak started. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was all very quick succession. Yeah. The contestants today are uh, Justin Earnshaw, an English teacher from Cheyenne, Wyoming, Sarah Helmers, an attorney from Washington, D.C., and Ryan Fenster, a banker from SeaTac, Washington, who's at this point three-day cash winnings, total 67,399. And they, uh, this is the, the classic episode. They, they get the Jeopardy round categories, talk and football, literary terms, F stop, F in quotation marks, each correct response will end in F. Introduction to film, geography 101, and an easy course load. We'll just get right off the bat. They miss all, like, they don't, no one offers a guess in the football category. This is, like, one of the most well-known Jeopardy moments of the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alex gives them a bunch of ribbing, which is fine. Uh, and I saw some some varied opinions on social media about using this episode again. Mm-hmm. Uh, some thinking that it was it was mean, you know, to to continue to open up this wound for Ryan and, and the other contestants. Others defending Jeopardy's choice for either viewership or maybe they didn't see it as you know being mean, but instead this is a funny thing and use yeah. it as much as we can. So I I will say. I thought there was a good viral moment later in the episode when we got to see Ryan's Mr. Burns impression. Um, Yeah, I did too. So in order to get to that, you have to go through this Mm -hmm. football triple stumper category. Yeah, I guess I I see both. I see see multiple perspectives on this, uh, on the question of whether this is, uh, whether it was mean-spirited or just, you know, fun and generating buzz to... To re-air this and to emphasize the football category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know where I fall in it yet either. I trust you did well in the easy course load. I did, yes. I, I'm a little perplexed at the category title. It's just course like a course of a meal. Is that the is that the connection here? Yeah, and it's sort of set up in order like yeah. courses through a meal sort of it, this does not sound like a good meal though i mean imagine that you go to a restaurant and you are served half a double egg with crispy bacon followed by some succotash followed yeah. by some tabbouleh followed by <laughs> followed by dirt cake made of oreos and gummy worms and presumably cake or pudding Followed by a flight of whiskey or wine. Like, this is... <laughs> it does not sound like a cohesive menu to me. You just gotta open your mind, Emily. I don't this want is to the go future. There. This is the future. <laughs> I don't want to go to there. <laughs> <laughs> but, I did, but I did find it a category. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one comes up in the literary terms category at the $2,000 level. 
It's the 13th pick. Ryan finds it. He wagers 2,000 of his 3,400. Um, Sarah's at 1,400 at this point. Justin is at zero. The clue is three types of conflict are man against man, man against himself, and this title of an anthology with Hemingway and Heyerdahl. Ryan correctly identifies that that is man against nature. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I've said man so many times in 30 seconds in, in recent memory. Have you read Contiki? I have not. I read it in sixth grade, and I don't know why whoever, whatever teacher decided that. I don't know why they thought that would be an accessible one for a sixth grade student. It's not like it's a good book. It's just very dry, and it's it's a book that an adult should read because you can you can access it more easily. Yeah, but I did because it was assigned. So. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Ryan is at eight thousand two hundred. That is a solid lead. Mm-hmm. He didn't. He didn't need those football clues. Nope. Um, Sarah is at three thousand. Justin is at two thousand six hundred. We get the double Jeopardy categories: Black History notables, adjectives, TV shows, and other words. Totally metal, dude. Civil law and stag. You're it. So the second daily double shows up in the totally metal dude category. It's at the $1,600 level. It's pick number 20. Sarah finds this one. She's at $9,400, uh, which is a good score, but she's in third place behind Justin's 10200 and Ryan's 12200 She wagers 2000 to kind of get in the middle there. And she gets the clue, a beam of cesium is a prime component of this extremely accurate device. The first experimental one was built in 1949. Uh, She doesn't know, and she guesses what is a Geiger counter, but that is the atomic clock, Mm -hmm. which is hearkening back to another deep dive, the one on SI units. Right, yes. Talked about how atomic clocks used cesium. Mm -hmm. So there we go. Mm Mm-hmm. Daily Double number three comes up in the TV shows in other words category, which I loved. Mm-hmm. At the $400 level, we had a triple stumper. It was three pairs of tootsies down below. That was six feet under. Um, I think they needed that one to get a sense of what was going on in that category. Yeah. And they all kind of grow into the pun. And then we were into it. Um, at the $800 level, hospital caregiver Mrs. Onassis, that's Nurse Jackie. Sarah got that one. At the $1,200 level, Yankee Terror Tale, Ryan rings in with American Horror Story. And that means that he is the one who uncovers Daily Double number three at the $1,600 level. Mm-hmm. It's the 29th pick. He wagers 4000 um, of his 15400 to Justin's 12200 and Sarah's 6600 And he gets the clue, homely boop. Mm. And he does not make the connection he needs to make there. And he does not come up with anything. The correct answer there is ugly Betty. And you could sort of see realization dawn as Alex started to say it. Yep. Have to think of Betty boop, but right. if you're trying to think what boop might mean. Could be anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then at the $2,000 level, we had a decade or less shy of two score years old. Always have to stop and think twice about what a score is. 
I know that it's 20. I know that it's 20. Somehow there's a part of my brain that is always going to say, is that the same as a dozen? (laughs) (laughs) I have to like tell it no and then move on. So yeah, that was 30 something. Yeah. Uh, Before we, before we go all the way down, uh, we do want to, we mentioned it earlier or Emily mentioned it earlier in the adjectives category at the $800 level. Uh, the clue is Mr. Burns's superior one-word catchphrase. Ryan rings in, and he does a pretty good Mr. Burns impression. He does a really good, Mr. Burns. Uh, what is excellent? Yeah. And he drums his fingers just like Mr. Burns does. And mm-hmm. It was nice. Yeah, it's good to see. I don't know if he had developed that impression or if oh, he just like, yes, yeah. That was a look of someone who has practiced his art. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah. And then Alex tried to do the impression back. It didn't go as well for Alex. No, as it, it didn't. Did for Ryan. Yeah. That's, um, that's okay. Yeah. We also had, we had an interesting reversal at the $2,000 level of that adjectives category. The clue was, if you can't pay certain fees, a court may declare you this synonym for needy. Um, Justin rings in and says, what is destitute? Uh, that is ruled incorrect. Ryan rings in and attempts, uh, what is penurious? Um, Sarah, that's also incorrect. Sarah rings in with what is impoverished. They were looking for indigent. However, right before the last daily double, we had a score correction there. They should have accepted destitute, they decided. Mm -hmm. So Justin got 4,000 back at that point. And then if he'd been ruled correct originally, Ryan and Sarah wouldn't have had an opportunity to ring in. So they get their 2000 back. That's right. Yeah. Really inflating those scores there, judges. <laughs> no, but they, they take it very seriously to get things right. Yeah. So if the word destitute is ever used in that legal context, then they have to take it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, which they did. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round... Ryan is in second place with 11,400. Sarah's in third with 6,600. And Justin is in the lead with 12,200. They get the category U.S. Authors. And the clue is in his 1958 essay, Essentials of Spontaneous Prose, he compared a writing technique to a jazz musician's style. And Sarah wagered 6,500. And guessed who is Fitzgerald? Not a bad guess for thinking of jazz age writers, although you should not be thinking of jazz age writers here. Right. Uh, and that is incorrect. Ryan wagered everything but a dollar, which feels unnecessarily risky yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a close second place. Right. Uh, like, I, I, I feel like the correct bet would be like 801 or something. Like, mm-hmm. um, let's see. Sarah, Sarah could, if, Sarah, get, if Sarah doubles up, she's going to thirteen thousand two hundred. So he should wager like eighteen oh one. Will lock. Will uh. Will will get him above Sarah's double up. Yep. Justin's going to make a big wager, presumably. Yeah, probably gonna um, make a cover bet. Yeah. But, but it works out for him. Uh, he correctly responds. Who is Kerouac? He forgot to know, but. That's okay. It was close enough for them to know. Um, And Justin wagered 11,000 and incorrectly guessed who is Russell. Mm -hmm. So Ryan ends up with a big payday. 
22,799. Yeah, yeah. And Ryan had an, an interesting run. It was in his fifth game. So the day the day after this, in double jeopardy, on the third pick, the clue was St. Thomas Aquinas died traveling to Lyon, France, while attempting to heal this rift between the Latin and Greek churches. Ryan responded, what is the great schism? And was ruled incorrect. They were just looking for a schism. And... Uh, Later, decide, later decided that the Great Schism is sometimes used to refer to this schism. Uh, but because they never corrected it in the game, Ryan went through this whole game, this whole double right. jeopardy round at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And so they brought him back. Much later. Months Much later. later. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he had, a, he had an interesting run. Yep. So on Friday, we had the game from Friday, February 16, 2018. Our contestants are Vinay Kadiala, a resident physician from Albany, New York, Gianna Durso Finley, an executive director of an educational foundation from Lawrenceville, New Jersey, and Rob Warman, an escalation manager from Adena, Minnesota, whose two-day cash winnings at this point totaled $21,499. And we have Rob recording with us today. So welcome, Rob. Thank you so very much. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thanks we for are, having me. We are delighted to have you. Uh, and we started off the Jeopardy round with the categories at the Como Park Zoo uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Take a letter. State's highest points. Reality TV shows. Eponymous brands. And title titles. So, Rob, you went straight to the Como Park Zoo. Which, I must point out, is about two miles from where I worked. I've been to the Como Park Zoo many times. I was, fingers crossed, hoping for lots of Minnesota-specific references. And what do they give us? Piece of cake animal trivia. <laughs> including, <laughs> including what's the tallest mountain in the world. I know, right? I, I remember when you got that one, you're like, what's, what's Everest? Yeah, exactly. And you're just kind of like, you're just kind of sitting there like, really? Yep, yep. Um, yeah, so this round, there were four clues left on the board do you happen to have a memory of like why this round may have taken longer i remember i remember asking glenn in fact or apologizing to him i remember glenn saying because this is friday it'd been kind of Mm -hmm. three days of lots of clues left on the board and i remember sort of i don't know if it was at the end of single jeopardy but i remember in the cameras not rolling moments apologizing to Glenn. Whoa, we didn't finish the board again. What, we're slow? And he said, wordier clues. Yeah. <laughs> That's all he said. So I don't blame myself for that. And it was that you had the videos in the oh, zoo. Yeah. And those always chew up so much time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Occasionally we see contestants who really do take a long time, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know. Like we were t- I think we are talking about this last week or maybe two weeks ago. It seems to go in waves. Yeah. There seems to be like a stretch of episodes where clues are left on the board, and then we have a long stretch where there aren't, and it doesn't seem to have rhyme or reason. Yeah, I think I think it's word your clues, and I was definitely my shows aired in that wave. All of my shows mm-hmm. and the shows surrounding it, there was lots of lots of sturm and drang about. Oh my gosh, more clues left <laughs> on the board among the the nerds talking about the show. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, cool. Are there any clues you want to talk about in this round? Oh. What, what what do I not want to talk about? First of all, let's talk about this Warman Joker, who first, every time he answers, he leans forward as if there's a microphone on the lectern. <laughs> there, there, there isn't. 
he has this habit of you can see his buzzer finger, which is resting on the lectern, and he uses his index finger, and it's flickering all the time. And so uh-huh. you can see that he knows all the answers. He's just not as fast sometimes because his mm-hmm. finger is always going. When in fact, I was always practicing my timing, and so even if I didn't know the answer, you'd see my finger going. I just wasn't pressing. So oh. in hindsight, I unintentionally made myself look really smart to the discerning viewer who could see, oh, right. there he's trying again. And some, sometimes I was, and sometimes I wasn't trying. Interesting. Yeah. Ah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I would not have thought of that. Yeah. It was, I'd have thought, uh, you know, maybe sometimes when, when I was showing my buzzer, if I saw the person next to me got in, maybe I would start buzzing just to make it look like I thought I knew. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And and uh, as you might mention, we all, three of us, <laughs> silently agreed to avoid the reality TV shows category like the plague. None of us wanted right. any of that action. <laughs> well, hey, you didn't have to deal with much yeah, of it, as so it there turns you go. Out, yeah. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rob, we get the first daily double of the game. Uh, it's pick number 19. It's in the title titles category. You found it. And you wagered, I believe, everything. Absolutely. First round daily yeah. double. That's that's hard and fast rule. You bet it yeah, all, baby. Gotta bet it all. It's 2200. Absolutely. That's, like, that's, that's less than two clues in double jeopardy. Exactly. Yeah. Play money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's the warm-up round. Uh, and you got the clue, Vlad the Impaler, the real blank blank. Yeah. And you responded, who is Count Dracula? And so did Alex, but he didn't do his Dracula impression. I'm, I'm sure if I had had the gumption to do it, and and there's a couple moments in this episode that we'll get to where I wish I had a little more gumption, I would have done that, and I bet he would have played right along. If I had gone, Count Dracula, he would have oh, undoubtedly yeah. jumped in. Absolutely. But I, I, I didn't want to be that guy in the moment. Well, I, that, that, that's understandable. I mean... For this, this is still the first tape day. Yeah, right? exactly. You, you got exactly. you got on stage in for Wednesday. Yeah, you you won as a as I, I think I've mentioned this before. Um, my first game was also a Wednesday game, and as we were prepping for it in the green room, uh, I think Monica, one of my cont- contestants, uh, asked. So we go to lunch after this, and they said, "Well, the winner goes to lunch." The <laughs> If you don't, if you don't win, you're, you, you leave. And she said, oh, this is the Hunger Games. Oh, so I like hilarious. to think of Wednesday shows as the Hunger Games. I love it. I've so. never heard that before. And I think it's hilarious. That's fantastic. The other thing, yeah. and Alex hinted at this in the intro, which doesn't make sense when they're rerunning just one episode. But he right. talked about how, oh, the players yesterday, they all missed this easy clue and didn't get samurai, which makes no sense because you didn't get to see that but he's right. right it was a triple stumper and even worse it was a triple stumper where i was in the lead and second place was close and the the super fans know mm. i'm supposed to lose because yeah. i'm supposed to bet big and then second place bets low and they win well lucky me second place over bet and so i managed to escape by the skin of my teeth and so all the more reason that that this was like an unexpected game for me. And here I am just a few minutes in. And so I, I didn't want to be cute. I had a job to do. I did sure. not want to, <laughs> not want to yeah. almost lose again. Yeah. That was the same case for me. My, my second game, I should have lost because mm-hmm. the, the same exact thing, triple stumper and yep. final jeopardy. Yep. It's all mm-hmm. luck. This game. Well, <laughs> and, most I of mean, it. Yeah. 
like like everything in life, it's a combination of Absolutely. skill and luck. Absolutely. Uh, so, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Rob's in the lead at 5,400, Gianna is at 4,400, and Vinay is at 3,200. Not bad scores for the for the Jeopardy round. Uh, and we get the double Jeopardy categories, Art and Religion, Film Sidekicks, Travel Eurasia, In A Hall of Fame, American History, and Ends in Ella, E-L-L-A. And here's here's my first thing I comment on when I think about these categories. I told myself and I joked with friends beforehand that, oh, I hope someday I'm up there and I get a category that I can go SNL on and I can do a Sean Connery imitation and I can mispronounce in some funny way and look at that second category and tell me if there's some other way I could have said it. I wish I had thought of it in the moment. I'll take films I'd kick for 800, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't think of it. It kills me because it's perfect. It's perfect. It's inoffensive. It's not, you know, I'll take the anal rapists. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Right. Yeah. <laughs> anal rapists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would have been so good. I but, know. I, I mean, know. Missed opportunity. It's, but, you know, I mean, it's it's double jeopardy. You're you're coming coming down off the... Yep. The first round, and you're like, okay, now it's real, and you're trying to focus in. You're not, yep. you're not trying to think of like punny things. And having won two games, and this is my third, I'm, I'm in that zone of, okay, I'm not just hoping to, to get a win and come home saying I won on Jeopardy. I'm getting into tournament of champions territory. So again, I had a job to do. I was, I was not oh. going to be silly. I was focused. Yeah. Good for you. It did not, <laughs> until I won that fifth game. It did not even occur to me that I was like, oh, I could be going to the tournament. <laughs> Yeah, it, it occurred to the rest of us, Kyle. Oh, man. Um, well, I was kind of busy. I'm like, <laughs> plus I knew Vinay was there to play. He was. He did great oh, yeah. in single jeopardy. I knew. I knew that this was not going to be a cakewalk. My first game was a runaway, and I didn't expect a runaway in this game. That's for sure. Sure. Yeah, and he uh, got uh, the first clue. The second's a triple stumper. He gets the third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Yeah. I imagine you were trying to get in on some of those. Absolutely. But some of those American history questions, I just didn't know. And he was right there. And in fact, and it's in that American history category, if you're listening close, you can hear Vinay gets in, Vinay says the answer, and then you hear, nice. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> At least three times I whisper, but it's loud enough that you can hear it. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. It's, it's gratifying to see somebody else get a Absolutely. Really good one. Yes. Yeah. I, House of Burgesses. Yeah. I was not going to come up with House of Burgesses in five seconds. So, on the seventh one, uh, seventh pick, Vinay uncovers the second daily double at the $1,600 level of Travel Eurasia. He wagers $2,500 of his $7,200. Rob and Gianna are still at their scores from the, uh, from the end of the Jeopardy round because Vinay has just gone on this run. Yeah, he's dominated. Yeah, uh, he gets the clue. The dunes of Echoing Sand Mountain near Dunhuang, China, are best traveled writing this. Luo Tuo in Chinese. And Vinay comes up with what is a camel. But only barely. Yeah. He says, yeah. camel? Long pause. And I am just dying for him. Please, Vinay, don't do this. Because I don't want to win that <laughs> way. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then last second, what is camel? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I was relieved. I was relieved when he got it because that was so easy. It would have it would have killed him to to miss Camel because he forgot what is. Yes. Yeah. It was easy. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> like way too easy for a sixteen hundred. Yeah. Exactly. All right. 
So then he takes us, oh, no, he took us back over to American history, and then you finally get into the mix, Rob. <laughs> finally. Yeah. For Teapot yep. Dome. Teapot Dome, which was yep. a flashcard. It was a flashcard I vividly remembered, so I was excited for that one. Yeah. And got yeah. me some mom- momentum, which is so important, of course. You also got Borat, which I was know. nice. That was fun. <laughs> that was fun. And I'm not a huge, even though I love Will Ferrell, I'm not a huge Anchorman fan, which is why there was a triple stumper on the Ron Burgundy question there. But yeah, I was yeah. I was thrilled to get Borat. Am I remembering right that there was a like a Kazakhstan question yep. in the Tournament of Champions? Was that yours? That was mine. Oh, that was my very nice. that was my very first buzz in, and I missed it. And um, yeah, and it was a chemistry question. I have a chemistry degree that that was one of many things that I think really killed my mojo was Uh, that I buzz in on a chemistry question and and just misfire completely and say, uh, because the question was about Kazakhstan, I said potassium and maybe that's because of the K. I don't know. Anyway, yes, (laughs) I did have a Kazakhstan and people online joked that, oh, he's referring to that funny song in Borat, the uh, Kazakhstan national anthem that says we have the best potassium. Best potassium. (laughs) But no, I wasn't referencing that, although it's cooler for me to say I was. I was just trying to be funny. Happens. I mean, you have five seconds to come up with what you think is right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the third daily double is in the in a Hall of Fame category. I like the way that's phrased. <laughs> in yeah. a Hall of Fame. And let's, uh, let's note that that's the first exposure we will have to this category, which is oh. why I did not bet nearly as much as I typically would have. Yeah. I was afraid of, I was afraid of a sports question. Sure, sure. Yeah, because I would be too. <laughs> and I would have assumed that it would be sports, but yep. it doesn't necessarily say so. So you wagered 2,000. Of uh, your, at that time, 10,200. You were a little bit behind Vinay, who was at 11,700. And uh, Gianna was still back at 4,400. She just... Yeah, she never she never got the groove. Yeah, yeah. And I my thinking as far as the wager was, well, let me, let me try and get the lead. But I didn't right. want to be too aggressive mm-hmm. because I was afraid it would be about the 1968 World Series or something. Mm-hmm. Yes, 68 World Series. Let's see. No, I'm not going to pretend I know that. In 20, the clue was in 2011, both the Wiggles and Kylie Minogue were inducted into this country's Recording Industry Hall of Fame. And and, and my my eye roll was pretty much audible because all I all I had to see was Wiggles, and I'm like, oh, okay, I got this. And and Alex yeah. even commented, but I got it right, and I said Australia, and Alex said, what? Too easy for you? <laughs> and I said, no, I should have bet more. I was yeah. really yeah. kicking myself because because yeah, the daily doubles are are your chance to actually make a move oh, right? when you're competing. Mm-hmm. You're competing on the buzzer, and everyone like the dollar amounts are set. It's it's a lot more even, and mm-hmm. this is your one mm-hmm. your one big shot. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. If I had any sense that that was a non sports category with scores like that, I would have bet more like seven or eight thousand. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's the uh, unfortunate art and religion for 1200 here's a sculpture of this hindu deity breaking his tusk to throw it oh my god good friends of mine that i worked with i you know she had a a ganesh statue in her office and i remembered a long conversation of why does ganesh always have a broken left tusk and she tells me the story so i knew that one cold which is what helped me get in confidently and quickly and and i was just hoping and praying please alex please alex keep your mouth shut and what does he say Oh, Vinay's unhappy that you beat him to that one. Uh, oh, it just it 
killed me. I wished he hadn't done that. But yeah. we all unfortunately know to half expect that kind of thing when it happens. And he, yeah. like, Vinay didn't mention anything in his interview about being Hindu, right? No, he did not. Oh, he did not. Okay, he did not call it out. Call it out in a way that would allow for a callback. Unfortunately, no. His interview was about you know, yeah, a sleepover at a zoo in high school that scared him or something. That's what I thought. Right, right. I th- and I thought maybe I'd miss something, but then he. No. I was no. like, I'm trying to give you the benefit no. of the doubt. No, nor do I recall yeah. any, any off-camera chat that would have somehow gone there. I don't think so. Nope. Nope. Just Alex being Alex. That's all right. We love him anyway. We all have our faults. Yes. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, Vinay is in the lead, actually, with 19,700. Uh, Rob is in a close second with 17,800. Gianna is at 4,000. It just hasn't worked out for her today. And we have the final Jeopardy category, Fictional Places. And the clue is, some residents of the place with this name came from Kensington Gardens, where they had fallen out of their perambulators. And uh, Gianna has wagered 100 and has the correct response, which is, what is Never Neverland? This is uh, from, from Peter Pan. Rob has wagered 15,000. What? The? No, he uh, did not. Why on earth would he wager that much? That's ridiculous. Why would he wager that much, Rob? Bonkers. I can tell yeah, you Rob. why. <laughs> Here's what he did. He, for some reason... And and no offense if she's listening. For some reason, he chose to completely ignore Gianna. He just acted like she wasn't even there. And then did all the right wagering math. Okay, Vinay's got this much. He's got to cover my double up. And so I, if he does that and he misses, that's my only hope. So he's going to end up with 3,799. So I should bet enough to have 3,800. Oh, that should be 15,000. Well, no, it should have been 14,000. So I, I even, that was my second mistake. My first mistake is I chose to ignore the third place threat. And, and that opens up this huge high range of aggressive betting and then bad math. So it was a, it was a massive mistake. Count it two different ways. So yes, 15,000. But I can explain it for what that's worth. It wasn't a pretty number kind of a thing. In your defense, the stage lights are are bright and the whole experience is drawing, jarring. Oh, the most uh, stressful part. What they provide you with with is a Sharpie. Oh, no, I had a ballpoint pen in my pocket. Oh, did you have a ballpoint pen? Because I had read read someone's advice in preparation saying, oh, bring your own pen. So uh, thankfully that helped me. But still, that final Jeopardy math. It's most stressful moment. I'm good at math. I'm fine at math. I love math. But, oh, clock's ticking and you're doing five-digit arithmetic, which is not something you do every day. And the strategy of it all. And it's such – I think it uses such a different part of your brain than trivia recall that, oh, I was yeah. always shaking like a leaf unless it was like a runaway and there was no real decision to make or if it was a runaway and I was losing. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that was – I get stressed just thinking about those moments of – calculating your final Jeopardy wager. Far and away, yeah. the only time I was stressed. Mm. Given the chance to, to do... Well, I mean, I guess this worked out for you. Yeah, and got you got a huge yeah. huge dollar value. Um, I think from your position, if my math had all been correct, I would have tried to stay $1 above Gianna's double. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, That's exactly. The, exactly. Right. I, sh- I should have bet about 11000 would have been my aggressive choice. Mm-hmm. So, But you made it up to 32800 which... Wow, that is a great total. Uh, an exciting win. That was my first yeah. first crazy win, I'd say. And in fact, Alex comments on, whoa, the audience is pretty excited. Yeah, it's my wife and her mother and her aunt. <laughs> <laughs> is all that excitement in the audience with three people. And then Vinay 
has wagered 5,300, which is not what we're expecting from him either. Yeah, I couldn't figure that one out. I still don't know and didn't have the chance to ask him and didn't want to because that would have been unkind. I mean, that would have just gone to 25,000. I don't... uh, Maybe he just wanted a really round number. I think he might be right. I I, I didn't even look at it that way. (laughs) Yeah, that's the best guess I can have because, yeah, it's not a... It's not protecting from a big wager from me. It's not protecting... I mean, no, I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. And he's incorrect with what is the infirmary. Although even if he'd been correct, even if he'd come up with Never Neverland, you would have been the winner on this one. I would have. Yeah, 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 exactly. And Gianna was the only one who bet right. I mean, that's that's a good bet for her. That's how how you're supposed to bet because her only chance Mm -hmm. is a triple stumper. Yeah. So that's the end of the week. Okay. So I know you guys normally have a little quiz. But I have mm-hmm. a little, uh, it's more of a Jeopardy nerdery quiz than anything else for you. Oh, all right. So Lay it on. I'm going to give you five examples that span the week, working backward. And you have to tell me what all of these responses have in common. So, for example, on Friday's game, Vinay gave the answer of varicella. That's the, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. virus that's chicken pox, whatever. Mm-hmm. In the Thursday game, Ryan gave a response that was motivation. You got that right. That was a correct response. On Wednesday, one of Rachel's responses was the Proclaimers. On Tuesday, one of Drew's responses was Gorsuch. And then on Monday, Gilbert gave the response of Technophile. And all five of these have something in common. Any guesses what they might be? Oh, goodness. Uh... And I'll expand it a little bit more. Emily, in your game, you gave the response of Chumbawamba. Oh, Oh, are these the only time that that uh, response has been given on Jeopardy? That is absolutely true. I call them them Volvaps. (laughs) The opposite of a Pavlov is Ah. is literally you are the only person who's ever given that response. I still tell people that they're not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's a pretty nerdy thing to be proud of, but it's there. I mean, I'm impressed. That was a uh, that was a good poll. I remember I had that that moment. You know, you're saying nice when someone yes. else gets it. When she got that, I right. was like, yeah, nice. Yeah. And Kyle, you uh, you gave the response of handy dandy. I believe in your game against Emily. I did do handy dandy. I don't know if that was against yeah. Emily or and not. And you also gave Skyway. I have actually found two for you. Ooh, Skyway wow. has never been an answer in Jeopardy except for you. It's, really? appeared, it's appeared in many questions, but only once was it the answer so far. Wow. Like Neil Gorsuch, mm-hmm. he's going to be another answer sooner or later. And so Drew is going to fall back on Polyhedra, which he once gave in a different game that wasn't aired this week. But wow. there you go. That's my wow. nerdy little thing that you guys can maybe keep an eye out for in the future. Because it's not hard to figure these out if you're looking at the J Archive page. You just look for right. yeah. look for it tends to be the wordplay or like the 14 letter word kind of games. Mm-hmm. Then you can sometimes see, oh, Noogie. Noogie seems like a weird word. I bet that's never been. And then <laughs> yeah. you search for Noogie and you get one hit. Well, there there you go. And that was mine. Yeah. My, my response was noogie. Uh, I would feel so weird saying. I know. It kind of felt weird. Yeah. It felt weird when I said it. It's true. What is noogie? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's really funny. All right. That's my quiz. My right. whole app quiz for you. Cool. Well, <laughs> thank you, Rob. My pleasure. So uh, this is normally the point, And I say normally, it, it's been a few weeks now. Um, so I guess the new normal is that we remind you that we have a Patreon if you feel uh, like contributing to our podcast, but we want to 
if you have to choose, we want you to choose to support one of the uh, many important and uh, worthy causes in our country and in your community, uh, working toward social justice, racial justice, and really just making our world a better place. We consistently talk about the uh, community, community justice exchange. You can find a lot of links and resources to uh, nationwide or local movements and organizations. Uh, you can always go to blacklivesmatter.com. Uh, you can, of course, check out their message and their, their purpose there, as well as find ways to uh, contribute either money, time, advocacy, resources, whatever it is. Uh, on their behalf. And Rob, as it mentioned in his intro to the episode, is from Edina, Minnesota, and he can speak to uh, local events. Yeah, it was about four miles northeast of where I'm sitting, where, where unfortunately George Floyd was killed. And the outpouring of support, you know, we went and helped clean up the next morning and and there's been so many donations of, of food and support and kind of the rebuilding of the destruction that happened. I can, I can reassure people that thankfully the city of Minneapolis is no longer burning or anything like that. But that said, this isn't anything that goes away tomorrow or next week. There's a problem that needs to be solved. And yeah, I think it's really cool that you guys are trying to highlight it in every way you can as well. Thanks. Thanks. So moving into the deep dive, um, let me say that I did not go out of my way to look for uh, clues from Rob's game, especially knowing that he was uh, knowing that he was coming on. I didn't want to kind of single him out like, oh, well, none of you guys knew about this. So let me talk about it for Attica. 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> actually, Attica would have been really interesting, though. It would have been. There's a uh, really good, I think, stuff you hit, missed in history class episode on the, that podcast on Attica, which is how I knew that answer. It's, oh my gosh, you want to talk about like <laughs> the prison system and all this. Oh, oof. Sorry. I didn't want to sidetrack us. Sounds but like we should have a Lord. deep dive on Attica real quick. <sighs> I mean, I don't remember enough to really go into it. I just remember how emotionally impactful that story is to me. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm going to have to go listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really good at plugging other podcasts on our podcast. <laughs> just for free, just all the time. <laughs> yeah, so if any of them are listening and you want to, like, yeah, I don't know, collaborate or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Kyle, or I guess Rob, you can jump in too. Do you guys have... I did choose a Triple Stumper. So do you have deep dive guesses? For I think you're doing a Triple Stumper on Alasa Apso, the dog breed. Ooh, that would be fun, but no. <laughs> <laughs> It's not on Lhasa either. <laughs> it's, it's also not on Lhasa. Um, Henry David Thoreau. Uh, nope. That that would seem to be all up in your wheelhouse, though. That, that would be all no, up in No, the Punch and Llama yeah. is actually all up in your wheelhouse. Go ahead. That's, mm. that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Um, would It's not a... You would not do another poetry thing, would you? I didn't. Do, I, no, Did, I'm not doing another poetry thing. Robert, Robert Peary. Yes. <laughs> Oh my god, everyone is so good at this except me. (laughs) Um, Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing that made this the thing that I have to do. Coincidentally, Robert Peary came up twice this week Mm, at Triple Stumper both times. Oh, were Um, there two Triple Stumpers? I didn't catch that. Okay, so here here are the two. They're related. Um, Robert Peary was not the correct response on both of them. Yeah, so on Tuesday, in the Explorers category at the 2000 level, we had 
For his drive to the North Pole in 1909, this explorer used 19 sleds of his own design. The sleds were built longer and wider than native sleds to lower the center of gravity, thus preventing them from overturning. And this one is Robert Peary, that Drew guest Amundsen. That was incorrect, and it turned into a triple stumper. But then on Thursday, Ryan's replay... In the Black History Notables category, at the $1,600 level, he was a longtime assistant to Robert E. Peary and a co-discoverer of the North Pole, and that is Matthew Henson. And so when I was going through the triple stumpers for the week, I was like, all right, we've got to talk about Robert Peary, Matthew Henson, and uh, exploration of the North Pole. Absolutely. All right. Brilliant choice. Brilliant choice. Thank you. Um... I am, like, not an explorer's buff, um, so this was this was new learning for me. This is, like, a when I was prepping for Jeopardy, I, like, memorized a bunch of, like, names and achievements to be able to sort of get the low-hanging fruit if it came up, but I've never really immersed myself in these stories, and this was a fun starting point, I thought. So, uh... The, the TLDR, um, before we get into sort of the details, um, is that Robert Peary was believed to have been the first person to reach the North Pole. Um, he was believed to have done that in April 1909, along with Matthew Henson, his teammate and longtime co- collaborator. But there was another explorer, Frederick A. Cook, who also claimed to have reached the Pole in 1908, so shortly before them. Um, he made the claim in 1909, having vanished for a period of time, but then he reemerged, claimed that he reached the North Pole in 1908, um, but his claim was widely disbelieved and disregarded. And then in 1988, so almost 80 years later, a study of Peary's records, which was commissioned by the National Geographic Society, concluded that Robert Peary had not, in fact, ever reached the North Pole, and he sort of lost that title. But his legacy as the guy who was thought to have been the first to reach the North Pole for, for 80 years sort of uh, remains historically relevant, um, even if he didn't actually reach the North Pole itself. So the North Pole, you probably know there's more than one definition. Robert Peary was seeking to reach uh, the geographic North Pole, which is defined as the point where the Earth's axis of rotation meets the surface of the Earth. Other ways to define the North Pole, uh, there's the magnetic North Pole, which shifts around. Uh, It's the shifting point on the Earth's surface where the magnetic field points downwards. There is the geomagnetic pole, um, which is like if you mathematically or like whatever, model the Earth's magnetic fields as as a dipole magnet, it's sort of the point where the magnetic North should be. So you sort of get rid of all of the wobbling and, and like you can... You can identify a spot that's kind of the like where the where the North Pole kind of comes out on average. There's also a point called the Northern Pole of Inaccessibility, which is defined as the point furthest from land in the Arctic Ocean. Um, and if you ever hear, come across the term the Northern Celestial Pole, that is the imaginary point in the sky toward which the Earth's axis of rotation points. Um, hmm. Yeah, but the geographic North Pole is the one that the explorers were trying to reach. And it's tricky because unlike Antarctica, this is just, it, it's just ice on the ocean up there. And so the ice is shifting around. Um, you can't mark, I mean, you can mark where you were, but since the ice moves, the point that you've marked as the North Pole may not be the North Pole 
a little bit later. But everyone was trying, but these explorers were trying to reach the geographic North Pole. Uh, so where the Earth's axis rotation meets its surface, and they were going to be on this moving ice, but, you know, try and, try and reach it. Um, so Robert Peary was born in 1856 in Crescent, Pennsylvania, to Charles N. Peary and Mary P. Peary. Um, his father died when he was very young in 1859, and his mother moved them to Portland, Maine. That's where he grew up, and then he attended Bowdoin College in Maine, graduating in 1877 with a degree in civil engineering. He, uh, after college, worked as a draftsman, making technical drawings for the United States Coast and Geodetic Survey. And he joined the Navy and was commissioned as a civil engineer at the rank of lieutenant. In 1884 and 1885, he uh, was sent to Nicaragua to work on a Nicaragua Canal project. And in his, uh, his diary from that time period, he first states his intention to be the first man to reach the North Pole. In 1886, he's getting really intrigued by Arctic exploration and, and writes a paper for the National Academy of Sciences proposing two potential routes for crossing Greenland's ice cap. And then in 18, later in 1886, he takes six months of leave from his, uh, from his Navy post to attempt the first of his two suggested paths. He intended to cross Greenland by dog sled, and he had $500 of funding from his mom. Um, and he planned, <laughs> <laughs> he planned to cross solo, um, but uh, a Danish official by the name of Christian Mygaard convinced him that it was too dangerous to go it alone and ended up joining him. Um, they traveled 100 miles east, but uh, projecting that they would were going to run out of food before they... Uh, completed their journey, they um, they ended up turning around at that point and coming back. So in 1887, he's getting ready to go back to Nicaragua, Nicaragua to continue his canal project. And at that point, he goes to a men's clothing store in Washington, D.C. I've come across two accounts of what he was doing there. One is that he was trying to purchase a sun hat. The other is that he was trying to sell seal and walrus pelts from his time in Greenland. I don't know whether either or both of those are correct, um, but those are the two stories I've come across. And um, there in that store, he is served by a clerk named Matthew Henson. So the two men hit it off and Peary hires Henson to serve as his personal valet in Nicaragua. Why does he hire him? Okay, so let's go into Henson's background for a second. <laughs> Um, so he's born in 1866 in Charles County, Maryland, to uh, freeborn sharecroppers. His family um, moved from Charles County to Georgetown in 1867, seeking to escape racial violence and uh, KKK attacks that they'd been experiencing and, and uh, dealing with in their more rural home. And in 1876, as a, as a 10-year-old, he has an opportunity to hear Frederick Douglass speak. He lost both of his parents relatively young. His mom, when he was seven, his his father remarried, um, but then died later on when uh, when Matthew Henson was eleven, and he went to live with his uncle in Washington D.C. and uh, his uncle paid for some schooling, but not a lot because at the age of thirteen he walks to Baltimore and goes to sea as a cabin boy on the merchant ship Katie Hines. Um, he travels all around the world, and the ship's captain becomes sort of like a mentor and teacher to him, training him in all kinds of things related to, like, seafaring. And then it's not, the timeline on his life is not totally clear, but in 1887, 
Um, he's working in that shop, B.H. Uh, Steinemetz and Sons, and meets Peary. And Henson's skills become invaluable in all of Peary's work. Um, Peary refers to him as his first man um, as he's planning his Arctic expeditions. They go on their first expedition together in 1891, and they would continue to work together for 20 years. So in 1891, Peary sets out on his second Arctic expedition, his first one with Matthew Henson. Henson becomes a really invaluable part of Peary's team pretty early on. Um, the accounts from the other team members say that he mastered the Inuit language, um, although their expeditions would have taken them into regions where di- several different Inuit, Inuit languages were spoken. Um, so it's not clear from any of the records which ones he mastered. But clearly he, clearly he spoke at least one, possibly more than one, indigenous language. Peary's expeditions benefited a lot and... Uh, Really, he was able to achieve the success that he did because they adopted survival techniques that they learned from the Inuit people. Um, their, uh, their style of dress, the furs that they used, the foods that they ate, um, construction of igloos, all skills that Henson helped them to acquire. Um, so in 1891, they take the second route that Peary had laid out. They're trying to find out whether the land mass of Greenland extends to the North Pole. The team includes Peary and Henson, and then a surgeon named Frederick A. Cook, who I mentioned a little while ago. He would split from the team later. Um, there is an ethnologist skier guy named Avond Astrup, a bird expert and marksman by the name of Langdon Gibson, and John M. Verhoff, who was a weatherman and mineral- mineralogist. Peary also brought his wife. He said that she was coming as the dietitian, although she had no formal qualifications in that regard. Uh, so they left from Brooklyn on the SS Kite in June 1891. Um, Peary was injured not too long after that. Uh, the iron tiller of the ship spun while it was ramming surface ice and broke Peary's leg. Um, he was uh, put off the ship in Greenland, and a dwelling was built there for his recuperation. He stayed there for six months. While the team did, I think they stayed sort of in the vicinity. They didn't venture too much further, but I think had some uh, some encounters with like Inuit people in the area. In May 3, 1982, the expedition continues, and Peary eventually is able to conclude that Greenland is an island, and uh, they begin their return in August of 1982. 1892. Sorry. <laughs> <I was gonna laughs> 1982. A hundred years later. There we go. All right. In 1893, Frederick Cook backs out of any subsequent Arctic expeditions with Peary um, because Peary has decided that he's going to require team members to sign a contract saying that they are not going to publish anything related to the expedition until after Peary has finished publishing whatever he's going to publish. And uh, Frederick Cook is not comfortable with that and uh, decides that he's going to he's not going to be part of Peary's parties going forward. In 1893, 1894, Peary uh, Peary and Henson make their first attempt to reach the North Pole. Pretty unsuccessfully, I don't know a whole lot about, didn't find a whole lot about that. Uh, But it's their first attempt. And then in 1895 and 1896, they do summer trips uh, focused on transporting iron from Greenland to the U.S. Um, So in 1898 to 1902, they... Uh, go on a series of mapping expeditions, and Peary achieves a record for furthest north in the Western Hemisphere. In 1901, Peary is believed to be lost, and his family appeals to Frederick Cook, 
who, um, despite his earlier decision not to be involved with Peary at all, does take a rescue ship to locate him, finds him and provides medical treatment for some health problems that uh, the Peary's suffering from, including scurvy. And then in 1905 and 1906, Peary and Henson attempt again to reach the North Pole. Uh, they take the SS Roosevelt north. Um, this uh, this gives them the furthest north by ship record, um, and then proceed on to a dog sled drive north. But their party gets separated in a storm. Um, Peary has insufficient food and no skilled navigator um, because the party's been split up. And on April 20th, his diary indicates that he's at 86 degrees 30 minutes uh, north latitude. The next day, he claims to have set a furthest north record, reaching 87 degrees, six minutes. Um, however, to for that to be true, he would have had to go almost 10 times as fast in that one day as he had averaged up to that point in like pretty much a straight line, whereas before he'd had to take, another, take you know, kind of go weave to, to deal with... Um, uh, to deal with the conditions. Um, so his claim that he reached that point is uh, dubious. After that, he returned to the ship and began weeks of travel along the shore of Ellesmere. Um, he discovered Cape Colgate, from which he claimed to see land, um, which he named Crockerland. Uh, Crockerland has subsequently been found not to exist, and his diary on the date that he claimed he spotted it said, no land visible. On December 15, 1906, the National Geographic Society awarded him the Hubbard Medal for his uh, for his discoveries in this expedition, which on uh, on examination the the records appear to have been exaggerated and or falsified. Hmm. Um, yeah. Great. Yep. Leaving off from Peary for a second, we're gonna come back to Frederick A. Cook. Remember him? So now he's yes. he has a rivalry with Peary. Um, and Cook has decided that he also wants to reach the North Pole. Subsequent to his uh, to his exploration with Peary, he summited Denali. Um, but in 1907, he decides he's going to attempt the North Pole. He heads to the Arctic. Um, he does not announce his intention to reach the North Pole until he's there. He uses a route that follows um, the muskox feeding grounds through Ellesmere and uh, Axel Heiberg Islands to... Cape Stallworthy at the edge of the frozen Arctic Sea. Um, following the musk oxen, Alex Trebek's favorite animal, by the way. That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. <laughs> um, so following the musk oxen um, allowed his party to uh, use fresh meat, musk oxen meat, uh, which let them conser- conserve their food supplies. His party pushed north over the frozen sea um, with members turning back to reduce the party size at set points. Um, eventually leaving only Frederick Cook and two native hunters. And Cook described a frozen polar sea, which was in continuous motion and at 88 degrees north latitude, an enormous flat-topped ice island, higher and thicker than the sea ice. Um, On April 21st, 1908, Frederick Cook judged himself to be at or as close as possible to the pole. Um, He stayed for two days there and then started to attempt to return um, but the return is where things get go really wrong. Cook had assumed that the sea ice would drift eastward. That's what everyone was assuming up to that point. Um, he's the first to discover and report that the sea ice drifts westward. 
So when they start to attempt their return, they are a hundred miles west of their planned route. They are cut off from their supplies by cracks in the ice and they have left their collapsible boat behind, assuming that they didn't need it because of these incorrect assumptions. Hmm. So he hunkered down for four months in a cave on Devon Island that they were able to find. They uh, ran out of ammunition and hunted with spears. Um, and eventually the sea refreezes and they are able to walk across. And in April 1909, Cook emerges to tell their tale. Um, and claims to be the first to have uh, to have achieved reaching the North Pole. So back to Peary. So on his return, Cook finds out that Peary had left to reach the North Pole eight months earlier, in August 1908. Cook believes that he has reached the North Pole four months before Peary set out, but nobody's heard from him for, for months and months. So Peary has set out. He... Um, he has a relay party, and I found some different numbers. Um, I saw 20-something people, and then I saw 50 people. It turns out that their party included women and children. So it's 20-something men plus women and children um, because they're hmm. Inuit families with them initially. 246 dogs, about 50 sledges. He has this system of using advance parties to leave caches of supplies. The party gets smaller and smaller as they proceed north. And with 134 miles to go, Peary sends back the last remaining party members of his party, except for Matthew Henson and four Inuit teammates. In April 6, 1909, um, Peary has a feeling that they were reaching the pole. However, Peary had gotten um, frostbite on his feet. He was, he was incapacitated. And so uh, Matthew Henson had taken over leading the expedition. And Peary was in a dog sled. Robert Peary was supposed to take over from Matthew Henson at the last minute as they approached the pole um, so that Robert Peary would be the first person to reach it. But there was a miscalculation and Robert Peary was behind Matthew Henson, about 40 minutes, 45 minutes behind is what I found at the crucial moment. And then Matthew Henson goes past the North Pole without realizing it because you know, how would, you know, how would you, how would you know? Yeah, how would you know? <laughs> um, realizes that he's overshot. He's back, he backtracks and he finds the spot that he believes to be the pole. He plants an American flag there. And then Robert Peary catches up. And Henson greets Peary, the story goes, when he, when he catches up, saying, I think I'm the first man to sit on top of the world. Matthew Henson and Robert Peary seem to both have taken measurements, although neither seems to have been completely certain that they correctly located the pole. But because of Matthew Henson reaching it first, their partnership and their friendship sort of unravels from that point. Matthew Henson writes about the return being strained and tense, that Robert Peary would get up quietly early in the morning and just leave and go ahead um, rather than waking the rest of the party as had been their custom. As Robert Peary and Matthew Henson are making their way back, um, Frederick Cook is ahead of them and gets word out that he has reached the North Pole. Now, on Frederick Cook's way back, he meets an American man named Harry Whitney, who is um, not as much of an explorer as these other guys, but does some does some you know sort of Arctic stuff. Anyway, uh, Frederick Cook meets Harry Whitney, tells him some of his story, um, and then. Harry Whitney agrees to um, 
hold on to some of Frederick Cook's instruments and records. Um, there's a complicated story about why this had to be. It had to do with, like, a team member was sick, and there were, like, it was, like, you know, how much stuff could you carry on, how many sledges, and anyway, there are, there are some sledge logistics. Frederick Cook needs to lighten his load, and he leaves these things in the in the care of Harry Whitney. However, Harry Whitney has a problem with his with his vessel, um, and he ends up getting kind of bailed out by Robert Peary, becoming a passenger on Robert Peary's ship as Peary makes his way back on the Roosevelt, and taking Harry Whitney on board. Robert Peary asks Harry Whitney whether he has anything of Frederick Cook's. Harry Whitney discloses that he has several steamer trunks of Cook's records and instruments, and Robert Peary refuses to take it on board the ship. So they they cache it somewhere by some rocks somewhere in Greenland. And that is what happened to Frederick Cook's records of his possibly having reached the North Pole. Yeah. Peary interviewed the Inuit guides who had worked with Frederick Cook and claimed that their accounts didn't support Cook's story of having reached the Pole, although... Other people's accounts say that the guides said they didn't understand what Peary was asking them. But long story short, um, in large part because Peary sabotages him, Cook's claims are widely perceived as false. In 1911, there's a congressional inquiry that leads to Peary being named as the first person to reach the pole, even though, even if you acknowledge Peary's party as the first party to reach the North Pole, Matthew Henson was the first in the party to reach the North Pole. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Uh, in 1912, Matthew Henson published a book entitled A Negro Explorer at the North Pole. Robert Peary really got most of the glory uh, throughout most of his life for, uh, for reaching the North Pole. But in 1937, Matthew Henson was admitted to the Exclusive Explorers Club. And in 1944, he and the other party members were given duplicates of the medal that Congress had initially presented only to Robert Peary. Robert Peary published a number of works about his Arctic exploration, including uh, Northward Over the Great Ice in 1898, uh, The North Pole in 1910, and Secrets of Polar Travel in 1917. And in 1988, in light of lingering questions about Peary's expedition, um, the National Geographic Society commissioned a study of Peary's records um, and concluded that Peary probably did not reach the North Pole. Um, he was probably about 30 to 60 miles short. They concluded that in 1989, um, and that's when he kind of lost that title. So that is the story of Robert Peary and Matthew Henson and Frederick Cook. And I was surprised how much intrigue there was yeah. in the story. Yeah. Yeah, the lesson being, go south. Go south as a landmass. <laughs> it's a lot easier to work with. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that must be it. That's, that's what I'm hearing too, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the only possible conclusion. <laughs> All right. Are you guys ready for a quiz on the North oh, Pole? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. All right. So this is all kind of North Pole-ish themed. Question one, and this one's going to take a little bit of lateral thinking. Canadian yeah. postal codes are six character strings alternating between letters and numbers. So it'll go letter, number, letter, number, letter, number. Canada Post has assigned an appropriate postal code to the North Pole. What is that code? I know this. 
Oh, Kyle, yeah, I got you know it too. too. Yeah, I think I do. It's you want to take it? You're the I, guest. I, Good. Well, Go let's, let's put it this way. I think it's really only one letter and one number repeated. Repeated three times. Yes, yes. exactly. I Go believe ahead, that is also correct. I believe it is ho ho ho. You are correct. Uh, sorry, you, you were gonna you were gonna get it, Rob, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. H zero H zero H zero to be specific. That is yes. correct. My husband was like, "How would anyone get this?" <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, ho 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 is uh, or H zero H zero H zero is the postal code for the North Pole. Very nice. All right, so question two. Uh, to my knowledge, none of the explorers I've mentioned came across the famous resident of that postal code, um, who was first represented as residing at the North Pole in Harper's Weekly in a series of drawings by what famous political cartoonist? No clue. Wow. No clue. I'll let Kyle take this one. Go for it, Kyle. You got I it. I have but one. I have but one guess, and I. I. I mean, if it is one guess, we've talked about this person multiple times on the podcast. Uh, my guess is Thomas Nast. You are correct. Nice. Yes. Very nice. Has it been multiple times? I, we definitely talked about him when we talked about Boss Tweed. We did. Uh, that might have been the only time, but I talked about him multiple times in that episode. I don't know. I uh, feel yeah, like I brought enough. him up more than once. Yeah. Cool. Um, cool. Yeah. I felt. I felt like a callback to Thomas Nast was once I came across him in uh, in researching the North Pole. I was like, all right, that's that's a quiz question. Totally. <laughs> all right. Uh, question three: The Arctic Circle holds a substantial portion of the world's untapped oil reserves, with numerous countries vying for control of those resources. In service of those claims, in 2007, a flag was planted in what unlikely location? Hmm. Unlikely location. The South Pole is my guess. That sounds lo- unlikely as it gets. Yeah, I don't know. The moon. <laughs> All right. Um, the, the answer here is on the ocean floor. Oh. Um, Russia sent two mini submarines to uh, take soil samples and plant a flag, um, trying to claim that that portion of the ocean floor was actually part of Russia's continental shelf and therefore was Russian territory. Nice. Yeah. Um, Classy. All right. So uh, Rob is at 10, Kyle's at 20. Here is question four. Although Matthew Henson is largely forgotten in historical accounts, his achievements are mentioned in a 1975 E.L. Doctorow novel, which was subsequently adapted into a Broadway musical. Name that work. Doctorow. I, this is... What was the year of this musical? Uh, ni- oh, I, I can give you the year of musical. Hold on a second. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I thought that's a, what the, the year was. It's a, ni- it's a 1975 novel, and the musical... Opened on Broadway in 1998. Oh, and who was the Jeez. the author you gave? E. L. Doctorow. Doctor- Doctor- yeah. Yeah, this is uh, not at all in my wheelhouse. 98. Uh, Avenue Q. It's gotta be Avenue Q. That's my that's my answer. <laughs> Are you saying that because you know that it's uh, Emily's favorite? <laughs> um, no, uh, that's kind of my... Or at de- least my, her first. My, that's maybe. my default uh, silly guess for a, for a okay. Broadway musical. Uh, I don't know the answer. Okay. Because um, I've never seen it and I want to. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not coming up with, a, with anything. So I am going to say... I don't know. 
Great White North. I, I don't know. All right. The answer here is Ragtime. Oh. Uh, yeah. That's from, um, that was in 98? Yeah. Whoa. Uh-huh. Yeah, I thought it wasn't, I thought it was earlier than that. Yeah. It, I'm not sure if I can call it a Broadway musical because I didn't see it on Broadway, but I saw, I saw the touring company of Ragtime uh, that summer of 1998. I think that was my first real musical I ever saw. Yeah. All right. Uh, question five. Although few animals venture as far north as the pole, there are a few that have been seen close. Um, it's rare for polar bears to go that far north, but one has been sighted within a mile. Uh, ringed seals have been seen as well. And within 40 miles of the North Pole, there have been numerous sightings of what other mammal with scientific name Vulpes legopus. Vulpes legopus. I've got a good guess on this one. Kyle? Yeah, I do too. Do you want to go first? Yeah, well, going up, going by that Latin name, I think I think Vulpes sounds an awful lot like a fox. So I'm, I'm going Ar- yeah. the Arctic fox on that one. That was also what I thought. All right. You are both correct. It is the Arctic fox. Nice. Yep. <laughs> and for our final question, final category is... Hodgepodge. Explor- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Good. Uh, explorers. Rob, you're at 20 points. Kyle, you're at 30. Oh, jeez. He's got to protect my double up, so I want to bet one less, so he's going to miss. And so he's... he. That's 10, misses 10, ends up at 20, so uh, I'm going to bet zero. Or I'm not supposed to oh. say that. I'm supposed to just <laughs> break it down. Oh, how do we Tricky. Do it? No, oh. it's fine. I was going <laughs> to bet 11 anyway. Yeah. All right. So Rob's betting zero. Kyle's betting 11. Uh, and here is your question. In light of Peary's account being discredited, now the first verifiable attainment of the North Pole was a 1926 overflight by what Norwegian explorer who is more famous for other accomplishments? I know this one. So Kyle, you, you go ahead and, or, or rather you can, you can, uh, we'll trust your, your word. And if you think it's Amundsen as well, then say it's Amundsen. (laughs) I mean, that was the only, that was the only name that came to mind. And I, I mean, I'm trying to think of what else that could be, but I, I don't know any names of explorers other than Amundsen. Yeah, I'll go with Amundsen because uh, yeah, Amundsen. That's what you. Right, that's what you would have written down with thirty seconds yeah. to go. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah me too. Yeah. With confidence. All right, you are you are both correct. It is Amundsen. Okay. Yeah. I thought for there was a moment where I was like, we talked about Thor Heyerdahl. Maybe you're talking. Maybe it was Thor Heyerdahl. <laughs> it's this flyover on yes. the Contiki. And I know, but that was like that's something different. Yeah. Like, Kantiki is very different than flying over the North Pole. Maybe that's what she meant. <laughs> yes, and I believe that he, uh, if I remember my, my details correctly, I believe he, he tossed a flag out of his, out of his aircraft uh, <laughs> to, uh, to, uh, to mark his, his achievement. All right, so uh, Kyle, you finished with 41 points, and Rob with 20. An excellent job to both of you. Um, and sorry for my for my weird uh, obsession with novels and Broadway musicals. It's all good. Although, I'm predictable. Yeah, you don't need to apologize. It's part of your brand. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Rob, thank you so much for being here. Oh, so much fun. So much fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We loved watching you play and loved, loved getting to talk to you today. Thanks. And uh, Kyle, thanks for potting with me, uh, as as always. Um, And thank you, listeners, for being here with us to talk about Jeopardy. We love you. We love talking about Jeopardy with you. Thanks for sharing this with us. 
Uh, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, leave us a review or a rating. If you want to find us on Patreon, we're on Patreon at Potent Potables. Um, but as we said before, there are more important things. So if you have to make a choice, uh, don't make us your first priority. Amen. You can support us without paying anything by telling your friends, getting more listeners. Uh, we've had a recent surge in new listeners. So <laughs> if that's if you are among them, then welcome. We're glad to have you here. You can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables or Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com and our website is potentpod.com. So until next week, when we'll be back with more reruns of former champions, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Quicker.